You're listening to the Verso Podcast. Welcome to the Verso Podcast. I'm Ethan Marshall Cohen. Today I have Ilya Troyanov in the studio with me to discuss his remarkable novel, The Lamentations of Zeno, which was recently released from Verso. We will bookend our conversation, which covered the backstory of the novel, his experiences researching the book by traveling to Antarctica, comments on climate change fiction, and the meaning of the original German title, with two readings from the novel. If we were pirates, and we're not, we're privateers with letters of mark that we call standard form contracts. We no longer slit throats. These days we do our murdering with unmanned drones. This would be our hiding place. If we were in a pirate film, we would put in at our secret island on just a day like today. The ocean is slate grey, the sky ash grey, our ship is sailing straight into a closed mass of anthracite-coloured cliffs. If open sesame turns out to be the wrong password, we'll get smashed to pieces. The captain has throttled back the engines. We're barely making headway, as though a hobbyist were tweezing us through the neck of a bottle. Everyone is crowding onto the weather deck with their binoculars, scanning for a solution to the riddle. The secret passage appears, the hidden opening which sailors of old called Neptune's bellows. Do you want to go into the water? Paulina had asked before we fell asleep. Of course I do. The basalt cliffs are perilously close, rigid and unyielding, like frozen fury. It's easy to see where the volcano left its mark, the flow lines from the lava. Ahead is a black, sandy beach covered with lapilli and divided by half-sunken ruins. Behind that arise, shadowed with snow caps, the rocky cliffs in between are glossy black and flecked with oxidized iron. Our ship drops anchor in the middle of a caldera. Even here, humans established themselves, and soon the volcanic bay ran red due to the rising demand for baleen, used at the time as corset boning and for whale oil, which went into nitroglycerin so people could blow each other up in the trenches of World War I. What wondrous innovation to make explosives out of whales. What a vibrant symbol of progress, destroying the essential to create the superfluous. Decades later, the volcano took belated revenge, singeing away all human presence. Deception Island is a demanding port of call. We all have our hands full. Not only do we ferry the passengers ashore, we also take everyone medically fit on a longish hike. We used to dig a pit in the sand so the Antarctic tourists could bathe in the sulfurous warm water, but that's no longer allowed. Now the passengers have to jump into the ice-cold sea and jump out quickly if they want to survive. The Brazilian doctor stands by with stopwatch in hand, making sure no one stays in longer than 45 seconds. Afterwards, we distribute certificates testifying that they took the plunge. 
when the doctor goes back on board, I jump in, the last to do so, and let myself be revived by the icy water. Hi, my name is, um, well, that's difficult to say, because um, in Bulgarian it's called Ilya Trojanov, but that usually is too difficult for West Europeans or North Americans to pronounce, so usually they say Ilya or Ilya, Trojanov or Trojanov, or mm-hmm. whatever people feel like uh, pronouncing the Slavic name like. This text, The Lamentations of Zeno, actually, what is the title you gave it? The German title is Eistau. Mm-hmm. Now, in Germany, you have the so-called compositor, which means that you can just take any two nouns, put them together. And the beautiful thing is you've actually invented a new word, and yet it's comprehensible to everyone because the imaginary space that is opened up by combining two nouns in a previously unknown way is something that someone who hears it for the first time can make sense. I mean, it's... So, Eistau is a word that didn't exist, but it consists of one word, which is easy to explain. That's ice. Mm-hmm. The other one, Tau, on the other hand, is um, is ambivalent um, because it has several meanings. So, it, it can mean dew, but it can also mean thawing. And and also, there's a kind of... There's a slight tinge of threat in the word, mm-hmm. kind of Eistau. There's a certain aggressiveness and a certain thrust in it. So anyway, the the American publisher Verso um, and the translator early on said, you know, there's no way we can find a, a direct translation. So they, they, you know, they were looking for something else and they came up with the Lamentations of Zeno. Zeno, of course, being the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I like about that is, and, and Zeno is very prominent on, on the book cover, because the name itself is very carefully chosen. It's um, a name which um, refers to from A to Zeno. Um, there's the illusion of zero in Zeno. Absolutely. There is Zen. There is Zeno. He's very much a contrarian. Very much so. Um, so it's, it's, it's a name which um, has, I think, many different kind of... Um, Layers of um, potential meaning. Uh, yeah, and the old Greek philosopher, mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's um, there's like a whole eco space of um, references. Mm. So I think it would be, and it's almost even hard not to approach you with several questions about the kind of the allegory of this of this work and the different kind of allegorical pieces that I think are are present and self-aware. But I was wondering how you feel about the text in terms of it being sort of claimed as a climate change text, or um, how you see it fitting into the kind of narrative of climate change and humans role in it and i think choosing because there is there's quite a lot of fact in 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 the novel but it's it is a novel and i was wondering how you approached that challenge well first of all i think it's it's rather sad that we have so few novels that deal with whether directly or indirectly with um ecological destruction and general climate change more specifically 
that um, when you write a novel like that, it it has to be then categorized um, because it it actually shows you that it's something quite unusual. Mm-hmm. So people are saying like, oh, so why is there now a novel on climate change? That is a little bit bizarre because um, the great thing about novels was all, that they always dealt with the great topics, right. themes of their time. So actually I would ask the exact opposite question to those people who are making a big deal about it, um, covering and partly at least um, the question of climate change. I would ask how is it possible that we have so few literary works dealing with that subject when right. evidently anyone who's not a complete moron um, has to see that this is a major, major issue um, right. of our century. So um, that being said, novels don't start off, um, at least the way I write them, and I think that holds true for most most colleagues, don't start off with a, with a political impetus or a thematic focus. They usually start with certain images, certain inspirations. So in this case, it was um, a nightmare. And um, I actually dreamt of Zeno. I didn't know that was his name at that point. But he was um, very deject. He was very lonely. It was a kind of moon-like landscape, a moraine. And um, for whatever reason, I I saw in in, in the nightmare that this was a landscape which was covered not so long ago by a glacier. The glacier had disappeared, and this man was basically... Um, in longing for for a lost past, um, it was kind of you know paradise lost to him. Mm-hmm. He was in grief, and it was that. It was just this kind of particular emotional right. intensity. So I think the only difference between um, non-authors and authors in regard to nightmares is that we make a point of writing them down. You know, kind of right. we're we're mining our our own nightmares. Yeah, so, so I just wrote it down. And, and the bizarre thing is that it, it just wouldn't go away. There was some kind of um, immediacy about that particular vision that, that stayed with me. So I did what novelists usually do. You know, you start adding to the story. So you start asking yourself, you know, what happened before? What's going to happen afterwards? And after a while, I, I had a kind of the backbone of a, of a story. And I realized that... Um, if I was to write about it, I would actually have to get seriously in, involved. I would have to get seriously informed about stuff like geology and particularly glaciology. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, uh, in regard to the more scientific aspects of, of climate change. And uh, so I looked up on the Internet who is kind of a well-known um, glaciologist. and um, I found a, a professor in Zurich has a very Swiss name. Heberly. So I called Professor Heberly. He very kindly invited me. So I went to his uh, to the university in Zurich and um, told him the story and um, asked him to kind of brutally, honestly tell me whether, from his point of view as a specialist, it makes any sense. And while I was telling him the story, you could see how his face kind of changed a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, oh boy, this is, he's going to tell me, you know, forget about it. This is utter nonsense. And uh, quite the opposite happened. He actually said, where do you get this story from? I said, well, I dreamt it up, basically. Hmm. And he said, this is incredible. This is exactly the way I feel. And this this is so so pertinent and so close to 
my personal experience and the experience of many other scientists I know. So, yeah, by all means, go ahead and write it. And, um, you know, if you need any help. And he then showed me something which, which I'll never forget, which was very dramatic. And I wish everybody could see it. It was um, the fruit of a long-term project that the University of Zurich has been doing in Central Asia. So they have actually visual material that covers about four decades. And Central Asia is um, a part of the world where glaciers are melting in alarming speed. Um, so he could show me on two gigantic screens in his office, he could show me how a particular glacier had developed within basically my lifetime. So I'm, I'm, I'm 50 now, so mm -hmm. basically the last 40 years. And it started off with this beautifully majestic glacier and and for those for those listeners who've never seen a glacier i think um to understand the particular passion that glaciologists have you you would have to have personally experienced the amazing and truly unusual beauty of a glacier because it's not only beautiful in terms of you know kind of the the, the pristine whiteness of this huge expanse but it's also particularly enticing because it it's constantly moving it's constantly changing so if you're speaking about allegory i mean the glaciers in in the realm of geology the closest you can get to a living object yeah. although of course per definition of biology it's not living but it each glacier has its own soundscape which which would interest you so um after a while i figured out that really good glaciologists could probably, if you woke them up and played them uh, the soundscape, they could tell you, well, of course, this is a glacier so-and-so. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, it, it's always moving, so it, it flows on the melting water. So between the ice and the rocks, there's this layer of, of melting water. So it's constantly flowing towards the valley. And on itself, in a way, right? Exactly, yeah. on, exactly on itself. And... Um, it is it it, it it contains everything. So it has in it it has gas, it has water, it has ice, mm -hmm. um, kind of the diversity of the elements, and it has these incredibly um, beautiful. I mean, Seno calls it in one scene chapels inside, and 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 it has the the interesting thing is also how you it's it's um it's a lesson in cognition because as someone who is not acquainted with ice your first glance tells you, well, it's all kind of whitish. Um, so you're basically only seeing uniformity. And the closer you look at it, and the better you become acquainted with it, mm -hmm. you start seeing the diverse hues of these colors, which are somewhere between white and blue. And the incredible um, beauty, if, if, you know, if, if, you have, if you're sensitive to these things, the incredible beauty of all these shades which are constantly shifting so it's, it's like um, also a word of uh, a dynamic work of art mm. um, so it, it's once you you can feel this um, passionate admiration for glacier i think then it's very easy to imagine how painful it must be to to see this glacier destroyed and this process of destruction which professor haberly showed me on the two screens is truly ugly because what happens is, first of all, um, the top of the glacier starts turning blackish. It's, um, it's soot and it's other kind of particles, uh, fine particles, um, 
which land on the top. Because of that, as we all know, it um, contains even more um, heat and warmth, so that accelerates the process of melting. And after a while, you can you can see it shrinking, and it, so it gets it shrinks and it becomes blacker. And at the end, you just have these blackened patches of white, where you once had the majestic Leviathan of, of the glacier, and th that is truly horrifying if you see it. Not, I mean, not in a sentimental sense that the loss of a glacier is, uh, you know, more more troubling than, let's say, the loss of of a certain animal that's become extinct. But I think, especially in terms of what you asked, the, the symbolic value of it, because it drives home something that is usually quite theoretical. So a certain agenda of of destruction that we can. Um, discuss in the political discourse in a, in a very um, kind of abstract way, there becomes tangible and becomes um, very also emotionally relatable. And for, for, for a novelist, that's, that's perfect because you need some way to express um, what's happening to, to our planet in, in terms that are beyond the usual data, you know, kind of degrees and all that stuff, which which I've noticed actually even people who are sensitive to the issue kind of become um, used to these numbers and like, oh, it's, you know, 360 and it's, you know, all these different numbers that are continuously being repeated and, and um, you know, three feet of rise of the water level and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, I think we humans have, have a big problem that most of us lack a certain imagination to translate hard facts, usually numbers, into emotional constructions that that truly strike it, strike the message home, um, truly kind of make you uh, open your eyes and your hearts and, and kind of react to something that's um, actually un, un, unbearable in, in many ways. Absolutely. And I think the glacier functions perfectly in that way because it's this kind of disappear it's already this kind of unimaginable it's alive it's moving yet it's just quote unquote just water just ice just vapor it's this disappearing of this already unimaginable force that as you said is kind of it, it can come across at first as being sort of Mono, monolithic in a way, yeah. but really is. Yeah, that's complex. that's one element. The other element, of course, and and I think that's also a very powerful symbol, is that it you you cannot imagine a process of making this destruction undone. So it's it's absolutely finite. Right. Once the glacier is gone, it's gone. I mean, um, maybe in two two million years. When there's another ice period, you know, maybe they'll come back. Right. But, but there's no simple way, or there's no, to us, visible way, of um, putting the the glacier back into the landscape. Right. You know, it's once it's gone, that's it. It's it's a very powerful symbol of um, complete and utter destruction and finite destruction, yeah. particularly because we can't really conceive of how they got there and and the 
even that even though the decline or the even though the kind of dismantling of them is happening rapidly in a sort of scientific sense it still doesn't register to a lot of people i think yeah that, that that's a very good point that the timeline of um of creation is like millions of years and yet as you say to most of us except probably for a few very uh, intelligent uh, geologists we can't possibly imagine how this came about and yet the destruction is happening, as I said, within my lifetime. Right, right. So the timeline is, is incredible. You know, something which took millions of millions of years to develop, and we are kind of um, we are uh, getting rid of it within. A, you know, that's a blink. Uh, that's nothing right. for the years. Um, I'd like to go back to when you were discussing um, your conversation with Professor uh, Heberly. Uh, Professor Heberly. I think one of the really significant and effective aspects of the novel is the interplay between the, the personal and the factual. And, and that, I think, plays out in the form, the ends of each chapter, having this kind of almost tuning of a radio quality to them, which I found very compelling, and prophetic tuning of the radio. Mm. But so much of the climate debate almost is self-consciously predicated on fact. That these are the facts, you know. What what's what 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 is that the kind of constant phrase? Ninety eight percent of climate scientists agree. Dot dot dot. I almost we could have even found that in the radio tuning sections yeah. of each chapter. Um, and yet, as you said, um, with your your friend the professor, like you are expressing something that's very a very kind of internal and personal relationship to the planet. And I, I found that really fascinating. First of all, I, I was wondering if you were on any journeys like this on a ship. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, I was. Well, first of all, what I think what we have to explain is that so Zeno is a glaciologist. Mm -hmm. He's um, 62 years old, and um, he's been studying this one particular glacier, and it's basically died. I mean, of course, as a geologist, he wouldn't use the words the glacier died, but it, there's but as, nothing but more. As a person, he would. Exactly, yeah. as 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 a lover, he would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, there's nothing left for him to do in a scientific sense because this glacier no longer carries any um, scientific interest. So he 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 basically experiences something like an existential crisis, and um, he yearns for for ice, and, and that's where he spent his life. So where does he go? And that solution that narrative solution was very easy of course mm -hmm. he goes to the antarctica which is the only place left um on our planet where ice is resplendent mm -hmm. and besides that one of the things i learned basically when you're writing novels you're, you're really educating yourself so um i tend to look at it as um, an enormous blessing i'm allowed to educate myself and the readers basically are Financing yeah. this this process and get to join, join and then yeah, yeah, then get to join if 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 uh, yeah if if they want to go along for the ride. Um, so one of the interesting things I found out is that actually the Antarctica is not only um, a huge um, landmass which is covered with several kilometers of ice, so the perfect place for someone who's yearning for ice, mm -hmm. but it's also the only part of the world where actually mankind has been able to come up with a reasonably rational, sustainable solution. They've actually signed a treaty that the Antarctica, all, all the important states, 
that the Antarctica would not be um, treated the way the rest of the planet is treated. So you're not allowed to mine there, you're not allowed to um, do anything besides highly regulated research. Mm -hmm. So there are a few research stations. But even tourism is ex ex extremely ecologically regulated. Um, you know, you're only allowed to spend, the passengers only allowed to spend one hour a day on land. He has to keep a certain distance from all the animals. He's not allowed to throw a single thing away. So actually the people working on the ship walk behind the passengers and even if there's a small snippet of paper, uh, they immediately pick it up. So afterwards, it's like as if mankind has not been, um, has has actually not landed, has not been there. And and the the, the amazing thing is that it actually works. You know, it's, it's an in a way, it's a very positive thing. We are capable of treating a certain part of nature, a certain part of our planet, with the necessary respect and, and discipline and self-control and, and and so on. And and yet, this is the complete opposite of what is, what is happening in, in the Arctic Circle, mm -hmm. where, as you know, President Obama opened up exploration, and not only the USA, but of course Russia and, and Denmark and so on. So basically, there's this huge run for the next big prize, um, uh, which is going to be the Arctic Circle, because there the ice is melting at an alarming rate. And all the scientists agree, again, you know, uh, that probably within our lifetime, there will be no ice in the summer um, in uh, in the Arctic Circle. So it's that's going to allow, of course, all the big fossil fuel companies to, to come in. And okay. probably that's going to lead to all sorts of uh, horrible ecological disasters because any technical problem that you might experience in the Gulf of Mexico, um, you would have to take times a thousand in the extremely difficult um, climatic circumstances of the Arctic Circle. So you can imagine if, if, if there's an oil spill there, there or if they have any technical problems there, it's going to be uh, utter catastrophe. So, so, so in a way, I, um, it, it was very, very... Um, reality was, was very suitable um, for um, what I was try, trying to narrate. This, this person then goes on a cruise ship to the Antarctic, giving lectures, and... I didn't know that apparently this is something that many professors do. Um, I'm now teaching at Dartmouth, and there's a there's a professor there who um, also um, in in our winter, which of course is the Antarctic summer, who spends a month traveling on a cruise ship, informing um, the tourists about different aspects of be it geology, biology, and, and so on. Um, so he's kind of reunited with um, the object of his love and passion, ice. And it's a very, for him, ambivalent situation because on one hand, he is, of course, he feels at home. He feels um, comforted by all the ice that surrounds him. On the other hand, he's aware of the fact that he is part of a, of a human energy that strives towards destruction or inevitably mm. leaves, uh, leads towards destruction. And, and the crazy thing is that I didn't have to make that up, that I, I then went on um, a trip into the Antarctic at the beginning when I was still researching, and then I repeated the journey towards the end. So mm. the first journey was just to gather information. The second one was to check upon the information I had used in the novel. 
And as you are getting closer to the Antarctic, you can see all these places where mankind has left a footprint. Now, the interesting thing about Antarctica and the region around Antarctica is that because it's so cold, every footprint, literally and, of course, in a symbolic meaning, um, stays there like forever. I mean, a, a simple footprint takes a thousand years to to be erased. Mm -hmm. So, the, be it the whaling stations, be it the military stations, all these small footprints are incredibly ugly because they they stick out like sores from an otherwise pristine right. and untouched landscape. So you get a far more intense sense of what it means, for example, to set up a factory for for whales as, as they did in, in South Georgia. And because it is surrounded by a backdrop of incredibly beautiful, completely uninhabited and thus untouched landscape, the, the ugliness of it is, is far more vivid and far more intense than if you're driving, let's say, between New York and, and Washington, where all you can see is kind of the effects of human civilization. So you, you don't actually notice the, the distinction. And um, the other interesting thing, and this is, I think, very, very topical, is that all these professors or all these scientists on board took a great interest in, in, in my project, in my novel. And one of the reasons was that, in, in, and we had long, long discussions, um, long conversations, I realized that they actually are, nearly all of them, unhappy with the fact that they are not transforming the, the science um, and the, the, the content of their, uh, of their scientific work into a narrative that is making a difference. So there's a sense of frustration because they have amassed an enormous amount of information regarding all these issues. And yet at the same time, society is not really waking, waking mm -hmm. up to the immediate concerns um, that they're trying to address as citizens beyond you know, the scientific work they're doing. So in a way, many of them have started, and this is why it was very easy to do research, many of them have started to um, reach out towards artists. And so, for example, the, the Institute of Arctic Studies in Dartmouth um, is now inviting, regularly inviting artists to, like the last guy who was there was a rapper, mm -hmm. um, to see whether they can actually bring artists into the fold and whether there, there can be a kind of collaboration which would enable us together to reach a greater amount uh, of people. Because, of course, these scientific studies are just re uh, read and discussed by a minute number of, of people. Um, so it would, it, with some scenes, I actually had uh, very energetic collaborators. They would, they, would, they would time and again come in and add something and say, well, yeah, this is what you could do. And keep in mind, the penguin's beak is very contaminated because uh, yeah. the bacteria there is, is very resilient. So if a human being were to be bitten by a penguin, you know, bits and pieces like that. And it, it was not, it was very helpful to me, but what really fascinated me was the urgency which they felt for all of this knowledge that they have to be kind of channeled into a different narrative. 
Um, and which is why the, the, the two big institutes in, in Germany, one is probably the most famous one of polar studies, it's in, in Bremerhaven, it's called the Alfred Wegener Institute, and one of the most famous climate um, science institutes is it's in, in Potsdam. And, and both peop, scientists in both of these institutes were also very, very willing to discuss the issues with me and to help me along. So for the first time in my life, I actually experienced something like um, a duet or a tandem between art and science and and realizing that it's extremely unfortunate that we have such a categorized public sphere where each one of us preaches to a certain kind of public right. and there's very little crossover and, and with issues that are so incredibly important for the future of mankind, I really think we need as much crossover and as, as much um, um, kind of collaboration as you can possibly get. I think that's a very effective aspect of the work. You know, one thing about presenting all of these um, very, I think, very real and important pieces of factual information about the destruction of habitat or, or as we've already discussed, the degradation of glaciers, it's happening in this context of, of fiction. And I, I, for one, sort of always take a step back from the notion of fact when I engage with a novel. Mm -hmm. But I still think it manages to come through in a very real and visceral way, which I think is kind of what you're getting to in terms of the collaboration of science and art. Yeah. But maybe just to add mm -hmm. one thought, that this is one way to look at the novel. You could actually look at it um, through a completely different lens. And you could say... It's the story of a human being who is basically disgusted with both himself and with mankind. So it's a, it's basically about love. It's it's a love affair gone sour, and it is someone who, um, he says at some point that I'm. I think it's um, the quote is, "I am tired of being a human being." Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of um, he does have a. I mean. He, he was married and his wife left him and so on, but he does have a new love affair with, with a um, Filipino woman who, who works on board the cruise ship. And, and yet he is no longer capable of true love. And um, so it also, I think, poses the question, what, what does love mean in times when um, we have certain sensitivities or certain people with certain sensitivities have a sense that we are surrounded by so much destruction that this simplistic um, concept of, of love is is no longer valid to them. So it kind of, um, you, you have a whole emotional story which plays out, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is an, on a completely different level, which you could link to all these scientific questions that we discussed. But on the other hand, you could probably just lead, read it as... Um, the sad but very, I think, intense story of, as you said, visceral story of an elderly man who um, no longer sees how he can love. Right. And even in that, in that moment you're discussing where he says, I'm tired of being a human being, um, whoever, his, whoever he's speaking with kind of infers that he's having sort of self-doubt. And Zeno says, no, I'm not tired of being me. I'm tired of being a human being. And I think that kind of ripples throughout a lot of his interactions, as you said, with his love affairs and with Helene and um, his, his ex-wife. 
that he's not, and even he kind of keeps referring to himself as a killjoy, and there, and we kind of keep getting these flickers of these moments where he tries to bring things to the real, that there's this kind of affectation of what goes on on these ships, and oh, this is a grand old time, and the bird watchers are mark making their marks, and he keeps trying to bring it back to almost like you know what he's this is what's going on and he's constantly being met in his social interaction with the sense that he's kind of bringing tidings from an unwanted place which i think is a lot of what science is dealing with as well as well actually now that now that i think about it as mm. a lot of i think writers have to deal with as well yeah I think yeah, scientists. But I also I also think political activists yeah. experience that all the time. That people are like, well, you know, give us a break, and why do you always have to be so right. uptight about it? And and um, it's. I worked for quite a while as as a journalist, so I would come back from places from different countries in Africa or India and stuff like that. So people would say, oh, well, how was it? You know, you're invited to a party, isn't it? Right. And then in the beginning, you make the mistake of starting to tell them, you know, about um, the very intense things you experience. Mm -hmm. Some of them horrors, some of them very encouraging, some of them moving, some of them horrifying, so on. Um, and then you notice after, after like a minute that they don't really want to hear it. It's you know, it's too much. It's mm -hmm. too too intense. It's too much in their face. It's. So I think that's something many of us experience that if if you're really passionate about something, um, you're surrounded by a lot of people or by a society that actually wants to be left alone, you know, wants to just have a peaceful, sedated, wants to have a sedated existence. And you're surrounded by all these kind of half zombies, um, you know, who, you know, just imagine, sometimes I think of our kind of, late capitalist society has this huge casino and everybody's playing his own slot machine and imagine you're going around trying to tell stories or to preach or to dish out scientific information or to agitate uh, with a political purpose and everybody's just pressing his slots and he's thinking what is this noise why why doesn't this this person just get out of my sight and let let me alone yeah. It's. I think it's. It's that. That. That's something I. Uh, I know from from a lot of um, emails and, and letters I received that this is something quite a lot of people um, experience. And the other thing you mentioned about these cacophonic short um, chapters in between, which are that. That's exactly actually my imagination, as if the you're. Yeah, yeah, you're tuning the radio. But it's almost a cultural radio. Exactly. Like things are coming from everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. From all. Yeah. It's like. The radio at the same time, you know, the TV is on at the same time, internet, and yeah, at the exactly. same time, your neighbors and, and someone, you know, the, 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 the lorry on the street selling mm -hmm. ice cream and so on and so forth, all these things. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit the notion of nature and tradition and how this plays into everything. Like, how is it that nature is, well, I don't, you sh I ho I'm not expecting you to have an answer for this, but... How is it that nature and tradition are separate? Well, first of all, you, you, one would have to point out that there, in, in literary terms, there is no tradition in regard to the Antarctica. Uh -huh. um, so this, this, to me, as, as a novelist, was the most challenging and most fascinating aspect, that you're actually trying to describe a landscape and the experience of a landscape 
without taking recourse to a well-established archive. Mm -hmm. So basically what, what the relationship between literature and nature is one of different one-dimensionalities. So, you know, the romantics had a certain way of uh, presenting nature, the realists another way, and so on and so forth. So you would have um, each time basically a an undercutting or undermining of the tremendous plurality and the diversity of, of nature. Um, so it's, it's usually then colored by a certain perspective, which is dogmatically, ideologically pre-fashioned. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, you, you, there's no danger of this happening to, to me as the author because the Antarctica has hardly ever been described. There's a very, very small canon. Most of it consists, of course, of explorers who, whose uh, predominant interest evidently was not in the ecstatic expression. Explorers and, and war. Times um, yeah, but but even they, of course, were not really into aesthetical questions, <laughs> evidently. Except for the dropping of the flags. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that that's that's a really funny story, um, which which is completely true. I mean, the great thing um, um, about research is that you realize that you don't really have to invent uh, everything because reality usually just gives you an incredible, you know, gives you an incredible story. So, one of them is that. For some re truly bizarre reasons, um, the Brits profoundly believed that at some point Hitler was going <laughs> to try and conquer Antarctica, and um, so they they actually set up a base there. And there were these people kind of monitoring movements and and waiting for for the Germans to come. And um, I always thought it's like really waiting for Godot. I mean, they're sitting there in the middle of nowhere. I think for like three or four years they couldn't leave there. And and spending the winter in the Antarctica is really tough. I mean, for several months there's no light and stuff like that. So it's really, really a challenge. But the only thing the Germans did was actually drop flags over what they, at that point, um, renamed uh, Neuschwabenland, which is New Swabian Land. Mm -hmm. And so in the old colonial tradition, at first you name something, then you claim it. They thought, okay, let's first name it and then... At some point, it's going to become a German province, an Antarctic German province. So the Antarctic is also full of the, the hybris and the lunacy kind of, of political um, uh, relationship or political, um, what would you call it, um, taking... Agenda. Yeah, yeah political yeah. agenda, exactly. Um, but in, in, in purely aesthetical terms, is. Is, is the great challenge, how, how do you describe an, an iceberg? Um, you know, the, the, the very, very few existing descriptions. How do you describe a landscape that has truly not been touched by human hand? Because when you're on the ship and you're looking out, you, for days on end, um, you see landscape devoid of any sign of human intervention. Absolutely nothing. So it's, it's quite, it's, at first, it's quite disturbing because you, we're used to seeing at least you know one pole or one electricity line or um, at least one house or one path or you know something. So so even I've like walked through parts of Africa and, and stuff like that. So even in 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 the jungle in in Tanzania, for example. At some point, you would find like an avenue of mango trees. You, you would know these were planted by 
slave traders in the caravans of the 19th century, or you would find certain paths, so you would know these are age-old um, connections between different villages. But in the Antarctica, there's absolutely none of that, except for these very rare um, bases or old um, small ports or whaling stations. So um, that that makes it really fascinating because you you have to come up with a language that is also seemingly fresh. Um, you, you cannot use um, too many topoi, too many tropes, mm-hmm. um, too many elements of a well-established archive because they're not fitting for the for the immediacy of 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 this truly overwhelming spectacle of seeing untouched nature so 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 that 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 was really something that was hard work um and and i was very very happy to hear from from several um scientists who worked in, in the Antarctica, and the last one was Professor Virginia in, in Dartmouth, that they actually thought that the descriptions of of ice, of icebergs, and of glaciers, and all these things, of the geology, that they actually thought that it was um, very powerful, although they they know it. So those were kind of the kind of readers whose opinion was, was then uh, important to me. Mm-hmm. Standing braced on the weather deck of a pitching cruise ship, taking in the gale, the storm, face lashed by wind and spray, having the breath knocked out of the lungs at the mercy of the elements and frozen through after only a few minutes, no matter how many layers of high-end, high-tech material, Passengers can enjoy a brief taste of the deprivations of a bygone era, just one door removed from the warm cabin, from where they can witness nature unleash its force through a glass pane as though they were watching a prize-winning documentary. Almost everyone chooses the comfortable front-row view. Alone at the bow, I lean over the railing, the spray spits in my face, I claw myself into the wood. The wind slaps my cheeks. It has every right to punish me for my comfort, for the deadly sin of a civilization bent on denying the basic principle of life. Because whatever lives must strive to climb the energy gradient. Petrols dance amongst the gusts, The ecstasy of their soaring and diving is my own yearning, taking wing. I rock in the air as if I too had been granted such ability. The engines burble away in the moor of the howling storm. How ridiculous am I to be impressed by the obvious. We cannot read the flight of birds, says El Albatros, our ornithologist, merely misunderstand it. In the half-visibility I sense the outline of a mighty object. An iceberg is floating our way. It's larger than our ship, flat on top as though brushed smooth, as if an entire province had detached from the shelf ice and was damned to orbit the South Pole or drift north 
and expire, bequeathing to the hemisphere the purest air and to the ocean the cleanest water, laden with healing powers that enable the phytoplankton to grow as well as the zooplankton that sustain the small shrimp-like krill that nurture birds and whales. The ice has been punched with oval holes, mighty vulvas pushing deep inside the berg, melting mating calls. Behind the curtain of mist, the sun flares unexpectedly, a measure of mortality. The glow withstands a few more waves before it disappears again, and the storm rages on in the twilight. Thanks for listening to the Verso podcast with novelist Ilya Troyanov, author of The Lamentations of Zeno. For more information on Verso releases, Verso podcasts, and all other things Verso, visit verso.com.